Well, Happy New Year. Uh, yeah, it's good. You know, time is really flying. You say that all the time. But this year, I will have been in full-time pastoral ministry for 27 years. I mean, I was not here. I know I don't look that old. I know. I know. That's what I'm saying. I know. You know, I grew up, I'm a church kid. I grew up in the church. I was Sunday school, vacation Bible school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Awana, Bible quizzing, youth group. I mean, it was my life. It's what I did. It's all I knew. I loved youth group. I went to college for that, to, to go that direction. Um, I volunteered at a lot of different youth groups along the way while I was there. I thought I really understood the, the, the youth pastorate. Until I got in it, and I oh man, it was not at all what I what I expected. Uh, for many of the years that I was in the pastorate, I was uh, uh, adult pastor, executive pastor, teaching pastor, student ministries pastor. They could never figure out what to do with me. Um, I was the second in command in most of those places, which meant if the number one guy got hit by a bus, then I would take over until they could figure out somebody competent to do this. This was what I did. And so I was so close to the pastorate that I thought I knew. If anybody knows what it is to be a senior pastor, I did. Until you get in the office. And it's like, man, what is this about? This is radically different. Now, this is the way it is for most of life, isn't it? You, you see different things and you think you understand exactly what it is until you take that on and then you realize, oh man, I, you see someone else's spouse and you go, well, must be nice to be married to that person. You know, look what I got. must be nice to be married to that person. And Paul Tripp, he's a uh, Christian counselor, author, pastor. He said at one of his churches, he and his wife were going at it at one point. And he said, 99% of the women in this church would be glad to be married to me. You see where this is going, right? And she said, well, count me in the 1%. <laughs> we think we know the way it is until we get on the inside. You've experienced this. Uh, you've had people challenge you with your job. Oh, boy, anybody can do what you do kind of thing. Yeah, they don't have a clue. You, you've went on vacation, and it's not at all what the brochure said. And you thought you knew what you were getting. You bought that thing, and you were sure it was going to be, but it wasn't that at all. And, and you, you thought you sent it for this project. How hard can it be, right? Famous last words. You get into it. Man, what is that? This is the way Christianity works as well. If, in fact, we were to ask the typical unchurched person who has been greatly influenced by popular culture and the media what they think a Christian is, what might they say? I know what Christians are. It's a closed-minded, hypocritical, judgmental, anti-science, you know, intellectually limited, bigoted, hate mongers. That's what Christians are. And, and that response would not be all that far off. And we, the church, certain Christians have not helped our PR issue at all. Folk will turn on TV and they'll see uh, Christians uh, picketing the funeral of one of our military people who have died. They'll see uh, Christians at a uh, gay parade holding up a sign, you know, God hates fags kind of thing. And uh, these folk, Christians, are, are very few, really, uh, but the media makes them look large and in charge, and so people are thinking, well, that's all Christians are. They, what Christianity is, it's defined by what people stand against, you know, what, what they're against. And folk on the inside, us, 
would say, well, hang on, we're not defined by what, we, what we're against, what we stand against. We're defined by what we're for. And so we, if we did a poll this morning, well, what are we for? I'm guessing we'd come up with all kinds of cool things, real stuff, legitimate things. But let me push it a little bit further. What is the one thing, the main thing that we're about, the thing that everything else is subservient to, the main thing? What, what, what would that be? Cosnus and Posner wrote a book, uh, The Leadership Challenge. And in it, they, they said this. They said that every organization, every social movement begins with a dream. The dream or vision is the force that invents the future. Everything else is underneath it. And then they give us some vision statements of some of the big Fortune 500 guys. Avon, if you've ever wondered what the vision statement for Avon is, it's to be the company that best understands and satisfies the product, service, and self-fulfillment needs of women globally. That's their one thing that everything else has got to work off of. Amazon, their vision statement is to be Earth's most customer-centric company, to build a place where people can come to find and discover anything they might want to buy online. Harley-Davidson, their vision statement, to fulfill dreams through the experiences of motorcycling. Starbucks, to share great coffee with their friends and help make the world a little better. Toys R Us. To put joy in kids' hearts and a smile on parents' faces. Craft foods to make today delicious. These are the vision statements. These are the one thing that these companies have decided for us. This is our one thing. Let me ask you, what is our one thing? And you need to know, this is not my church. I can't invent the one thing. It's not your church. You can't invent it either. If you've been coming the longest, that person doesn't get to to call the shots on this one. If you've been given the most, that person doesn't get to call the shots on this one. Our founder determines what this is, right? And he has. He's told us. He's getting ready to leave. He says, by the way, let me remind you of the one thing you can't drop the ball on. And this is what he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Make disciples. Now, this is the way we say it. We say our our dream, vision, transforming Erie by introducing others to a transformational relationship with Jesus. That transformational relationship that's making disciples. Now, what we have to do as we think 2014 on, we have to determine what this making disciples is all about. What does a disciple look like? First century church, easy enough. The person was actually following Jesus, or they weren't. Uh, But today, what does it look like? This is real important, because A, he's told us to do it, so we probably needed to figure out what it looks like. If you are a your boss at work tells you, pulls you aside and says, I'm going to give you a project that all the whole business is resting on. You have got to nail this one. I'm going to give you the resources, but go. You're going to want to know the specifics of what this success looks like here, won't you? If you have a father that loves you very much, says, son, daughter, I'm going to give you a project that is so close to my heart. You, you, ha- you can't fail on this one, okay? I'll, I'll give you the resources you need, but go for it. You'd want to know, just because you love him. What what does he really want? This is a stewardship issue. What does disciples look like? We need to ask this question personally. Let me ask you, are you a disciple? 
You might say, well, hang on, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, that's good, that's, that's, that's good, but you, we just need to be reminded that Jesus did not refer to his followers as Christians. More than anything else, he referred to them as disciples. You might say, well, I prayed that prayer, and I raised my hand, and I went forward, and I signed the card, and that's good, that's wonderful, especially if, maybe only if, that's the beginning of your relationship with Christ. You surrendering, you repenting to him, giving him all. That's great. But again, Jesus never referred to his followers as folk who've prayed that prayer, signed the card, raised their hand, came forward. He called them disciples. What does a disciple today look like? A real important. Real important because 2014 just started, right? At the end of 2014, barring this major crisis, we're going to pull off a lot of programs in this church. We're going to have a lot of services. We're going to collect money and spend money. We're going to have coffee and play shuffleboard and go on trips and have teachings and, and, and have all kinds of things. But if we have not made more disciples, that's the, that's the issue, right? I mean, at the end of this year, if we are real efficient and frugal and financially squeaky clean and well-staffed and flexible and we avoid scandal and we're politically correct and we're safe and we're legal, but we have not made more disciples, you know what? We failed. It's just straight up. We have failed. We've turned the church into a country club and organization. We've taken the vision that our founder has given and thrown it away and invented it with something else like the, the vision is to be convenient and comfortable and enjoy life in a spiritual climate. Well, that's not what he said. We will have failed. Not just me. Not, you're saying like, well, if I were you, I'd get busy. No, 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 not just me. You too. Uh, Jesus gave that command not to his disciples. You're involved with this one. As a church, you, me, if you're claiming him, this is part of you. It's really huge that we ask ourselves, what does a disciple look like today? Well, what happened around this, this very question several months ago, several pastors and directors got together and we said, okay, what does a disciple look like? What's a, an emotionally, spiritually healthy person look like? And you can imagine we filled the board. Gazillion things. And as I stared at those things, it, it seemed that they, they fell into four categories. And then as you look at the Old Testament, the, the children of God, those four categories are very clear. And if we look in the New Testament, the, the followers of Jesus, their same categories are laser-focused. And we, we call these things the L4 followership, only because it helps us remember. What does a, real, a disciple look like? If we're thinking a disciple is just someone who goes to church, well, we're all in, right? We're all here. We're in. We're in. Uh, but Jesus didn't classify it this way. An L4 disciple, disciple, someone who learns from Jesus, they, they thirst for his word. So, somebody who lives for Jesus. It's not just head stuff, it transforms their life. Someone who loves as Jesus. You know, Christianity was never a, a, a Lone Ranger thing. It was always done in context. L loves as Jesus. And a, a disciple is someone who leads others to Jesus. You just, whether you have the gift or not, you, just, you can't help it. You want to lead people to Jesus. So on the front end, this is what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks, is we're going to be unpacking these, because the goal for you, for me, is at the end of 2014, we want to be more uh, pure disciples, 
And we want to have developed disciples and produced more disciples here. And so we need to focus on what that, that is. Now, we want to focus on this morning, just for the remaining few minutes, is that first L, learn from Jesus. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And I know right away you're saying, wait a minute, learn from Jesus, but we're going to Psalms, the old before Jesus, that's something fishy. Or hang on, we'll get to it. Psalm 1. And if you don't bring your Bible, I think in the pew in front of you, 527 page number, you're going to want to grab that because we've been having trouble with our projector and it may just go out. And so you're going to be wanting to see this. As you turn to Psalm 1, again, just to to let you know that in some of the earliest Hebrew uh, versions of the Bible, Psalm 1 is not Psalm 1. It's called the introduction to the Psalter, to the Psalms. In other words, Psalm 1 is really just a, a summary of all of the book of Psalms. If you understand Psalm 1, you pretty much have understood the whole book of, of Psalms. And so this was their, their hymnal for the temple worship, the book of Psalms. And so Psalm 1, the introduction, let's just dig right in. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Now, Notice the wicked thing for a minute. This is not like a Bonnie and Clyde uh, type person, some serial killer deal. The wicked is could be a very kind person, a smart person, a, a well-respected person in, in society, but it's simply somebody who has not seen the world through God's eyes. We would say today, buzzword, they don't have a biblical worldview. They're seeing the world. They've got lots of ideas of how to live and how to do different things, but they're not seeing it through God's perspective. And you see what this person does. is doesn't say here, blessed is the man who does not hang out with the wicked, because we do hang out with the wicked. Jesus hung out with the wicked. Didn't he go to Matthew parties where there were tax gatherers and sinners there? Absolutely. Some of us have uh, wicked People who don't have biblical worldview in our homes, in our workplaces, on our teams, in our schools. We hang with them. We're supposed to be salt and light there. Absolutely. But the problem is, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. It's a little bit different. It's somebody who is, they have his ear. They're telling a spouse in how to live life and how, what to think about different things and why everything is the way it ought to be. And they're kind of listening without a discerning filter of God's word. And here, here's the principle from, from this psalm that's a principle throughout all of scripture. Huge principle, and that's this. Intake equals impact. Got this? Intake equals impact. Always, always, always. What you put in is going to shape and shape your mind and shape your thinking and shape your understanding. It just always does. So he says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. You see the progression here. He was walking, but now he stopped, put on the brakes. This standing in the way of I think of my junior high years. Uh, terrible years. Try to remember, forget most of those. But seventh grade, you know, we have we had some bullies in the school, and I was not one of them. I got beat up by them, but I wasn't one of them. And and they would, uh, you know, kind of typical stuff, block your way in the hallway. And then you try to walk around, they walk, move over. You know, and they just kind of define. Go ahead, just try to get by me, kind of thing. And we think standing in the way. Oh, that's what's going on. You know, 
it's standing in the way that they go, wearing their shoes. Again, you see the, the progress. This person was listening to, to the wicked. And now they're putting on their shoes. In other words, they're accepting some of the mindset. They're accepting because intake, right, always equals impact. It, it just does. And so they're beginning to... Let me give you a couple of verses. Great verses. These should be every, everybody's life verses, but teenagers especially. We've got Proverbs 13, 20. Uh, it says, He who walks with the wise is wise. This is not rocket science. <laughs> he walks with the wise is wise. But a companion of fools suffers harm. There again, the fool is just like the wicked person. They just don't have a biblical worldview. 1 Corinthians 15. Check this out. And, and it, it says, don't be deceived. And whenever scripture says, don't be deceived, kind of circle it. Because that means you and I have a propensity to be deceived about this very issue. Or he wouldn't have said it. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. In other words, intake equals impact. You cannot not be impacted. It's going to happen. It, it's what you're about. And this guy, if we listen... Sooner or later, we start adopting. But it doesn't stop there, does it? They don't stand in the way of sinners. They sit in the seat of mockers. This is huge. This guy was listening. Then he stopped. And he started adopting. And then he started espousing. In other words, he moved into their neighborhood. He started talking these things. First, he was just listening to them. Then he started believing them. Then he became one of the wicked. Is what it says. Because intake always equals impact. It just does. I had someone tell me one time, uh, vitamin stuff, they were saying, you know, all these vitamins, people wasting their money, vitamins, and I'm not lobbying for the vitamin industry, but they were saying, you know, waste your money, and all that happens, you take all these vitamins, these people have the healthiest urine I've ever, but that's all that happens. That stuff just passes right through them. That's all it does. And I said, well, really? I said, so you, they take all that stuff, but none of it really gets in their system. It just passes on through them. And they said, that's right. I said, okay, well, here, listen, I got a tablet of arsenic here. Will you, will you just take this? But don't worry about it because it's not going to impact your system, man. It's just going to pass on through, not a problem. Intake always equals impact. I, now, I'm not a uh, horseman. Uh, I've never really gotten into this thing, but I can imagine. Tell me if you horsemen out there might... might Correct me. But on the morning of the Kentucky Derby, when they bring the big thoroughbreds in, and they probably don't give them Cheetos and Mountain Dew. You know, it's my guess. I'm just guessing. I don't know for a fact. I'm guessing. They're not saying, hey, man, here's a Big Mac and have some fries and have a shake, too. They realize that intake equals impact. And so I'm sure they've thought about this very well. And probably all kinds of science and all kinds of thinking and all kinds of dollars and everything else has went into that horse's diet because intake equals impact. Now here's the thing for us. If in fact we're going to walk in the counsel of the wicked, we go through life and all we've got our friends in school and we got, we're listening to music, good music, sweet music, nice music, forget the beat or not the beat, but it might be written by people who don't have a biblical worldview and our television shows don't have a biblical worldview and neither do the, the videos and some of the stuff we're checking out on the internet and the things we're reading and constant, constant, constant intake. Don't think that that's not going to have an impact because it will. 
It shapes everything. It shapes how you think. It shapes what you say. It shapes what you believe. It shapes everything from your thoughts about sex to, to marriage to kids to leisure to work to everything. And so this year, 2014, what are we pouring in? What are we pouring in? Now, he doesn't say don't hang with them. Yeah, we live in this world, but he offers a solution. He says, blessed is the man who doesn't just tune his ear to unbiblical worldviews, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I, I, I love this. Now you might say, well, hang on, whoa, 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 Mark, you're trying to pull something over me, but I'm catching it now. This learn from Jesus is just a message on how we should read the Bible again, right? Oh, yeah, well, that, that's all right. Read the Bible again. Okay, done this. Before. All right. We think that it's like liver, you know? It's like... It tastes awful, but it's the kind of thing that's probably good for me, so I should probably try to do it, but it's just an awful experience. Okay, let's give this one another shot. But he doesn't say uh, that, does he? He doesn't say read. He says, but his delight is in the law. You know, if you're trying to read it, but you don't delight in it, what do you hide? Open it up. Okay, I'm out of here. Well, have you done anything other than just waste 15 minutes? Probably not. Probably not. Maybe you've done more harm than good. Because that has done nothing for you. This is his delight. And to delight in the, the word of God is, is normal for a disciple. It's normal. It's what's supposed to be. Just check this out. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Now, this is, this is written in about 1000 B.C. We're dealing with the only Bible they've got at this point, our first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, you've started this Old Testament reading. I hope you have. You need to know the second half of Exodus and Leviticus, probably some of the hardest reading in the, in the Bible for us. This guy's talking about that section, how I love it. When we get to that part reading, don't think this guy was crazy who said that. Maybe he just understands something we don't. Because it's normal to love God's word. Check this out. When your words came, I ate them, Jeremiah says. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Why? For I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. The, the, the chief characteristic of a disciple is not their prayer life. It's not fasting, it's not their giving, it's not serving, it's not their interest in social justice. All of these things are incredibly important, obviously. But it's their, their delighting in, their desire for the Word of God. And this is why, it makes sense when you think about it, how do I know how to pray except by what God says in His Word? How do I even know about fasting except for what God says? How do I know I should be involved in social justice other than what God's word says? How do I know about, about giving and being good and le- other than what God's word says about such things? The number one characteristic of, of a disciple has to be, God needs to be, it ought to be a delight in, a love for the word of God. It goes on. Psalmist says that it talks about the word of God. They're more precious than gold. He's talking about his commands. Than much pure gold. They're sweeter than, than honey and honey from the honeycomb. And unless you think this is just an Old Testament thing, Peter writes and lets us know. As I love King James on this. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. 
babies, my guess is, I can't remember that far back, but my guess is they probably don't care if they're wearing pink or blue. I probably don't care. They probably don't care if they got a Packers thing on or they got a Steelers thing on. They probably don't care what the border is in their room, the little toys that hang over the crib. They, they don't care. My guess is they don't care. They care about one thing, milk, because they know that this is their life. If they're going to grow, they have to have this. And what Peter's saying is we grow up and we get tied up with, with, the, with the room and what we're wearing and the color and the border on the walls and the little toys and we neglect the one thing that gives us life. And so what happens is the church, not necessarily our church, the church is filled with biblical literacy. And people who are spiritually anemic, they're, they're, they're spiritually sick because they haven't grown. Peter lets us know that you want to grow? There's one way. By the word of God. That, that is, is the, the key issue. That's what, what he's saying. He says, so this delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Uh, by the way, you might say, listen, hang on, Mark. Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. forget for just a second. Because I've been a Christian for a while, and uh, I want to delight in the law of God, but I just don't. I mean, I want to, though, but that has not. Listen, often we don't because you've had a bad Bible experience, because we are usually afraid of that which we don't understand. Um, because we decided we picked up the Bible and we started reading in a Theology 401 book when really we probably should have started in a Theology 101 book. We're into Ezekiel when we probably should have started off with John or something. Um, and we just have a bad taste in our mouth. You want to develop, because it's a developed taste, you want to develop taste to delight in the Word of God. The way to do it is to just do it, to be in it. But, but here's the deal. You have to go in and you have to say at the very beginning, God, I believe that I can know you as well as any mortal has ever known you. That's not a special gift. I know you through here. And so I'm going to pray, Lord, when I open it, would you open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law? I'm going to pray, Lord, I'm your servant. Would you give me wisdom that I might understand your statutes? Because I want to know you. And so when we go to the Word of God, not to click off for 15 minutes, but to actually get to know Him and get to know His will, He'll grow us slowly. slowly. Some, of the, some, of the, some of the commands we may not pick up right away. They might not be directly for you. You need to know this, especially as you're reading the Old Testament deal. Not every command is directly for you, but every command has a principle that is for you. And so it's our desire to find that principle. And how you find it? Well, this is why he says, on his law, he meditates day and night. You know, as we read God's word, important to read God's word. As we read God's word, we develop a familiarity. I was talking with Jelana, our children's director, uh, New Year's Eve. And she said that one of her goals for this year, she's on a Bible blitz, she's going to read through the Bible in 90 days. That's really cool. That's really, really cool because that gives you an incredible uh, big picture idea of Scripture. Um, when you study it, you find a passage and you just dig deep on it. Well, that's great because that connects your mind to God's mind. But if you want to connect your heart to God's mind, the only way to get there is through meditation. And you, you know how to meditate. You know, because I'll, I'll give you an example. Let me show you. If Jesus came to you 
And he gave you a text. It didn't matter what text. He just gave you a text. And he said, there's a principle in there. It's not hidden real hard, but there's a principle in there. If you find that principle and you apply it to your life, I'll be back in one week. And if you can let me know what that principle is and how you're living it out, I'll give you $500,000. My guess is we would all know everything about we need to know about meditation. We would be reading and studying and thinking on it. We'd be thinking as we drive and we'd be journaling and we would be on the internet and we would be we praying it through. God, would you help me understand how this and how does this intersect with my life? Because it's not just a head knowledge thing. I want to know and I want to grow. And, and that's meditation. That's why he says day and night that these guys thinking about it wherever he's going, whatever he's doing. This is why we see this with uh, Jesus himself. Jesus, about 1,800 verses in the New Testament are attributed to Christ's words. 180 of them, about 10%, right, are direct quotes from the Old Testament. So a tenth of everything Jesus said, direct quotes. We see Jesus, first time we see him in, in Matthew 4, a grown man, he's in the desert, and he's quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, as he's tempted by, by Satan. We find Jesus, the last thing, he's, he's hanging on the cross, right? And he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote out of Psalm 22. Jesus was just amassed with the word of God. He, he, he knew it. His followers, disciples are like their master. They will be with it as well. The Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' meditation on the Ten Commandments. You've heard that it was said, don't kill anybody. Now, when you're doing the Old Testament reading, you come in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, several other places. Thou shalt not kill. You go, I can apply this today. I won't kill anyone today. Good job. And we feel real good. We're applying scripture. Jesus says, hang on, hang on, wait, 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 wait. Let's think about premeditated homicide for just a second. Where does it start? Doesn't it start somebody maybe ripped you off or you got mad at them for whatever reason and you didn't forgive them? And you start getting more ticked off and playing those tapes over and over again in your heart. You, you hate them. It doesn't start with this action of actually killing them. It starts with the not forgiving them, with, with entertaining hurtful, mean thoughts about them. Now, I could have applied pretty easy they don't kill, but this other one, ah, it's gonna be, I'm going to struggle with that one a little bit more because there's some folk I don't want to forgive maybe. He said, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. And we say, well, okay, listen, I've been pretty, I'm, I'm okay with that one. But Jesus says, well, hang on, hang on. Where does that start, do you think? Doesn't it start, you see somebody, and you start thinking about them, thoughts you really shouldn't be thinking. Bingo, that's the place we need to go after. Meditation revolves around questions like, if I really believe this was true, how would this look in my life? God, what does this tell me about you? Or what does this tell me about me? Because every single portion of Scripture, I mean, this is all we, this is all we got. He didn't give us a ten-volume set. Every single piece is written to correct something or to straighten out our thinking or to help us along. So you say, why was this given? What about me required that this was given? What about people? What does this tell me about God? And as you're figuring all this out, you're writing this down, you're meditating. How does this look in my life? Without meditation, we'll never, ever live it out. And then he says, and here's the results. In verse 1, he says, blessed is the man. I, I love the word blessed. You know, there's a couple different words in the Hebrew for, for being blessed by God. Um, this one actually deals with uh, emotional health. It's supreme happiness. 
It's ultimate joy. It's a peace that passes all understanding. And you've got to love this part. The first word in the largest book, in the, 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 the hymn book for how we're supposed to worship God, the first word isn't bless or praise. The first word is God blessing us. I love that. I'm going to give you, if, if you are a person that makes sure that the number one intake is not folk with, a, with an unbiblical worldview, but you're focusing on my word. You know what's going to happen? Is there will be happiness. There will be joy. There will be an understanding and a peace in life. Isn't that what you're, what you're looking for? He's promised that from the very, very beginning. Verse 3, he says, He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. It's the picture of this tree that's planted by the, the water, and the roots are going really deep because it's by the water. Constant nourishment. The hurricane winds are blowing, but the tree is standing strong. And you know, as well as I do, that in life, lots of hurricane winds. And if you want to stand strong in the midst of them, he says, that's not a problem. But you need to not have your ear attuned to living life based on TV talk, radio, uh, all of the, the, the gurus of this world and while ignoring God. Because if you're listening to him, then you know what? You're going you're gonna to flourish. You, you bear your fruit in season. But now look at the, the wicked. The person this first guy was tempted to listen to is not so the wicked they're like chaff you know what chaff is chaff is uh, the little husky thing that's uh, around the piece of uh, grain when the folk would, would harvest they would bring their sheaves up on a hill sort of area where there's good wind flow and they would just beat the tar out of it they they'd whip sort of looking things sticks they would use um, stones and they just want to bust up the chaff and then they would pitchfork and throw it up into the wind and the heavy grain would fall back down and the wind would blow the chaff away. The chaff is like opposite of a tree. When the strong winds come for the tree, he's standing strong because his roots are going down deep. But for the wicked, when the wind blows, there's no production, there's no life. He says, therefore... The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Think of the folk whose pictures are on our cover of our People magazines. The sharpest celebrities right now, the hottest musicians, the, the folk who are really taking on the, the concert, they can charge whatever they want and people will pay for it because they are the voice right now. Or the folk who really define their sport. The guys today. Think of whatever industry you want to think of. Who are the people that we aspire to be like? Where will they be one million years from right now? It's as if they've gone to the beach. They started making their castles and they're filling them with some really cool stuff. No question about that. And they are uh, having a, a great time and they are partying and enjoying it. But they don't know. It's low tide. And high tide is going to come. And when it comes, it's going to wipe away every memory of them. It'll be gone. It'll be gone. But for the person who realizes that my goal is to be a disciple. My goal is to learn from Jesus. And so I am going to make sure I 
and wise and who I'm listening to, and maybe some of us, it's our first point of application. We know we've, we've been listening to voices that we ought not to be listening to, and we begin to adopt some perspectives that we would have never, ever dreamed of ever adopting. We've even been able to say, espouse some things that we, we say it. It's like, oh, I can't believe that. So against how I was brought up. Somebody who says, I want to be uh, an L4 follower. I want to be one who learns from Jesus, who's committed and dedicated to his word. Because blessed is the man, right, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night.